0: Artist Journal, August 6th, 2020. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am the artist of the Artist Journal, and I welcome you to this podcast. I have a very special treat for you today. As I open this thing up, we have Brian Kotz, Another person you've never heard of before. <laughs> another another great mind. We had Yuki last week. Yuki Nishimura on neoliberalism and that was a very interesting episode and we've got something very special to follow it up with. I've known Brian since I was pretty much like 12 years old and we met in a comic store, Eight Street Books and Comics, in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan in the middle of Canada and yeah the rest is history really. Uh, Brian was a huge influence on me. We both frequented Eight Street Books and I don't know how many of you are familiar with used book culture, but it is a very particular culture, and it's kind of a series of intellectual misfits, you know? I mean, because at the end of the day, people are revolve around books, and I remember there was this former hippie, or he's a hippie guy, Mike, who had a really interesting life, and he was a real... Hippie, and I think he spent most of his life in Vancouver and then came to Saskatoon. And uh, Mike passed away maybe three or four years ago. But he was a fountain of information. He was a, a reservoir of information. And he really couldn't wait to tell you about it. He had his own little misfit characters. You know, like it was really hard to leave the store when Mike was working because he he literally wouldn't let you leave. Because you would just keep talking, and you actually kind of had to be rude in order to stop and to leave. You had to say, "Mike, I have to go. I, I have to go. I just have to go." Uh, this is really interesting, but I have to go." So anyway, so it was, uh, that's, that's the environment where I met Brian Kotz. and you have to remember, this is before comics were cool. OK? Like I was like an avid. I was a weird. I almost want to call it a super collector. The first thing I got obsessed with was stamps and then I got obsessed with trading cards and by obsessed I mean it's literal, it's not all I thought about but it's most of what I thought about and I was just obsessed with how beautiful they were. They're kind of fetishistic like they're I just I was I want to own these things. Okay, and then comics came after trading cards. And yeah, that lasted years. And again, like it was in high school, you didn't advertise that you read comics. It wasn't cool. Okay. This was before comics were cool. You kept it low key. Amazing how things have changed. I mean, the New York Times, Robert Crumb, the great underground comics cartoonist, he talks about how the New York Times made comics like the way they try and make comics respectable is they call them graphic novels. This is how polite society refers to comics. And Crumb's like, that's all bullshit. They're comics. You know, like, spare me your pretensions, New York Times. And everyone else who's trying to pass these off as graphic novels, that's acceptable. You know, in a sense, you could say the term graphic novels is a legacy of when comics were not respectable, which was kind of most of their history, frankly. And it's a, very rich, very fascinating, beautiful history. A true American tradition. So Brian Katz, who was a he was a writer, and he ended up working at a book and record store, CDs 2s, the 90s, in Saskatoon called Tramps. And it had a few different locations. Like So he was there for a few years, and so he moved with the locations. And... Because I lived about five minutes outside of Saskatoon, as I like to tell people, I lived just outside the middle of nowhere. That's where I grew up. My mom worked downtown in downtown Saskatoon and my grandma lived there. So what I would do from grade four, I would get on the bus from elementary school. I'd go downtown, hang out for an hour and a half, two hours until my mom was done work, maybe an hour. And that's when I got to know Brian and where I got, and Brian was sort of like a teacher teacher looking for a student to a certain degree i mean he he similar to mike he had just a, a wealth of information which you're going to hear of today uh just an absolute wealth of information and where's the audience and and this is where a lot of the where the guests of this podcast like yeah I'll, maybe i'll have some more well known people on maybe we'll get veil vale from research publications but I want to have people on like Brian who are an absolute wealth of information and who are not at all celebrated or frankly recognized uh, for what they are. And so that's why I said in the last episode, my guests are going to be people you've never heard of for the most part. And yeah, I mean, Brian actually introduced me to research publications. If you never heard of that, one of the great sort of independent counterculture publishers of the... 80s and 90s. He's still around v Vale, and I talked to him every once in a while on the phone and he visited Berlin a couple of years ago. Had computer problems. I got him and I brought him my computer and saved the day. That was a funny little episode. And uh, yeah, so Brian introduced me to a lot of the counterculture, whether it was William Burroughs, J.G. Ballard, which I later wrote my master's thesis on, on the Atrocity Exhibition, and Also, you know, Devo, Philip Glass, you know, the whole gamut that now has sort of become, I don't want to say it's mainstream, but it's a lot more well-known after 2000. Like in a sense, the Smiths, it's not special to know who the Smiths are anymore. But in the 80s and 90s, particularly in the 90s, I mean, I was pretty young in the 80s, but in the 90s, it said something. If you knew who New Order and the Smiths were, that said that you were cool. Right. And then this got co opted by the whole alternative quote unquote. It was like a corporate meme, for lack of better terms, to describe this kind of counterculture uh, that kind of had its uh, kind of roots in what I'd say is William Burroughs and J.G. Ballard. I mean, if you read Ian Curtis's biography by Deborah Curtis, and what you'll see in there is that pretty much. Ian Curtis's two biggest influences were William Burroughs and J.G. Ballard, and to the point where there's the Atrocity Exhibition song at the beginning of Closer, And and there's Interzone, which I think was on Unknown Pleasures, which is based on a William Burroughs short story, the name of a short story. Yeah, so this counterculture, like, long story short on the counterculture, like, I see William Burroughs As kind of a founding father of what I consider the kind of late last half of the 20th century counterculture, kind of what I'd call the modern counterculture, which in a weird way has sort of been co-opted at this point or sort of become mainstreamed. If you look at the beatniks, you know, William Burroughs was basically the old guy that inspired, say, Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. He was like the granddaddy of them all. I used to call him the guy who shot back you know, and he's got a mixed legacy, too. I mean, he shot his wife, and I think people give him too much of a pass sometimes on his kind of moral failings, but a notorious writer and interesting writer. And what's funny about Burroughs, just a quick thing on Burroughs, is I think his value is in the audio recordings. Like, if you read Naked Lunch, which I did at 16, I found it actually, like, I could appreciate certain areas. I think the first page is actually the best, part of the entire book. I I can feel the heat closing in, feel them, et cetera, et cetera. The first three pages, I say, go and read that. That's excellent. After that, to me, it's more conceptual appreciation of what Burroughs is doing. And for me, it's the audio recordings that are where he really shines. That voice and the humor comes out. And he was a great satirist. And I think that kind of gets lost in the books. His books are interesting, He's got great imagery, Uh, you know, the cut-up method that he, in the third mind that he developed with Brian Geisen, which are very influential on, like, David Bowie. Even myself, I use the cut-up method once in a while. And what's funny about the cut-up method is it's a fairly simple proposition, but few people ever actually get to the point of printing out that piece of paper, starting to cut it, rearranging it, thinking about it. It's actually... Harder than it sounds. It's as simple to do in theory, but in practice, it's rarely performed, even though now there's quite an awareness of all the cut-up method and everything. So I'll just say, yeah, Brian introduced me to this counterculture. And again, so the beatniks ultimately led to the hippies. You know, when you look at Bob Dylan, you know, John Lennon, they, they put William Burroughs on Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. He's one of the guys. Like, so it's very important, uh, the whole drug culture, ayahuasca, the Yahe letters between Ginsburg and Burroughs, all of this together, his influence was enormous. And Brian really introduced me to what I would call as that tradition, okay, that counterculture tradition, which still kind of exists, although in certain respects it's kind of dying out. But I see myself, like that's how I position myself in that tradition. Uh, I see Vale definitely in that tradition. I mean, he did very influential books on Ballard and Burroughs and Devo, who's still around, you know. So Brian introduced me to all of these ideas, you know, even John Cage. I was very fortunate in that respect because... Saskatoon is not, you know, it's not easy to come across those ideas in the 90s. If, anyway, long story short, I ended up in university and I was taking these great neoplatonism classes from Kevin Corrigan, a great professor that ended up going to Emory Ivy League school in the States. I think he's got a chair there that like basically gets paid to think and teaches if he wants to, from what I understand. And uh, these neoplatonism classes were so phenomenal that I, I kept telling Brian about them that he ended up taking them. And he ended up going back to school, and we ended up doing our master's together at the University of Saskatchewan. I wrote on the Atrocity Exhibition by J.G. Ballard, which took some persuading, but I managed to convince uh, Peter Stoichev, who is now president of the University of Saskatchewan, who I need to write to. Uh, it's been a while. And uh, yeah, so we spent three years there, and then I eventually moved to Montreal, Toronto, and here I am in Berlin. Anyways, I have kept in contact with Brian, and I said, Brian, we need to do... As I sort of rethought this podcast a few weeks ago with Yuki, I want you to be on, Brian. You're like the perfect guy to have on this show, unrecognized and full of amazing ideas. And you're going to get exposed to a lot of interesting ideas. This is what it's like to talk to Brian. You know, and this is just a snapshot, you know, like there is so much more to discover. So I'm going to have Brian on regularly, Okay, maybe once every four to six weeks I'm thinking, but yeah, so that is what we have to look forward to. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Quick update. I like to make this also about my journey as an artist. And so the update on that is I've been trying to make things physical. I've been working a lot digitally in the last couple of years. And I realized you do need to have a physical product at the end of the day. So I have been working on that. Unfortunately, so I was going to Bethanyan, uh, and I had a date there. You have to wait six weeks to use their digital printers. It's hard to get an appointment. But I had a day there. And unfortunately, the guy was sick who runs the digital printing area. And so that was closed down for the day. I thought, okay, turn, you know, what I learned in first year philosophy, Ed Thompson, uh, turn defeat into victory. If you go in London, there's a statue somewhere close to the parliament. And I can't remember who it is. It's some general from World War II, I think. And it says, defeat into victory. And if you ever see that, that's a very famous line, and it's about turning defeat into victory. So I show up at this thing. I'm very influential on me. Uh, this is just very practical, because we all face defeats, right? And so I go to Bethanyan. I get, okay, I find out I've waited a month for this appointment. I was going to print all day. I had big plans. Prepared two days, all my files. So I thought, how do I turn this defeat into a victory? And... I thought, oh, you know what, I've been meaning to use the screen printing studios. I'm gonna just go and talk. And the woman who was explaining to me that the digital printing area was closed for the day was there and so I was like, oh, well maybe I could ask you about that. I've been meaning to. So luckily someone just canceled. They had an appointment a few days later. So I was gonna go and then I got a phone call saying they're actually having a special holiday for two days and they're taking a couple of days off. She didn't know. So anyways, that got canceled too, but that's fine. And so you know what I did? fuck this. I'm not going to... And I I told her, ah, that's life, all good. But I thought to myself, turn defeat into victory. How can I turn this into a victory? So I I started sending out emails and I found this place called Druck 3000, which means print 3000 in Berlin. Because I was looking up risographs and I'd never done risographs before. And so I just sent them an email and just said, hey, I've been working on some stuff. I'm curious. uh, How does this work? Can I just make an appointment? And so they said, here, why don't you send us a link of what you're working on and we'll let you know uh, what we... And it's like, okay, that's fine. So I've been trying to figure out how to do this Peloponnesian War series, which you can find on the Instagram, at Pocabelli. And I was like, oh, well, I'll send them some of that series from my website, some of the pieces, and just they can take a look. They're very enthusiastic. And so they asked for grayscale, CMYK PDFs separated, so you have to figure out how to split that properly. It's a couple of YouTube tutorials, so okay, did that and sent it and then got a test. And so there. now I have a physical product, and it's not perfect. Uh, there are certain areas that I'm concerned about, but now I can see what the technology does. And I thought to myself, I was actually telling Florian, shout out to Florian at druk3000.de, uh, so I went and picked him up in Berlin, it was in uh mitte prince Lauerberg area, and he gave me a whole bunch of samples of what they can do, just like these, you know, 40 different colors and different papers, and I thought to myself, and I told Florian, I should try and tailor some of these to your guys' process, because then, you know, I'm not going to be trying to get your process to work with my process and get a sort of in-between result, Let's see if I can sort of start making mixes that kind of fit your process really well and almost customize them to the medium. So that's where I am right now. So I'm going to send them a few more tests. Really interesting results so far. You can see them on the Instagram. Or if you go to druck3000 on Instagram, you can also see they posted a picture and showed some enthusiasm, so that's always appreciated. So we are getting physical stuff done. It's just brutal persistence is what we're up to here. So without further ado, let me introduce Brian. Brian is now a, I don't know if you call him an associate lecturer, a sessional lecturer at the University of Saskatchewan. He teaches English literature, which is what we studied. And uh, yeah, he's on summer break and he tells us all about so many things. Coronavirus, biosemiotics, J.G. Ballard we talk about. We talk about modern publishing. What else do we talk about? We talk about pataphysics. We talk about Baudrillard. Talk about nature, and what else? We talk about Richard Powers, an uh, author that he's reading right now. Talk about some of his Twitter and Microsoft Word or uh, Pages drawings that he's doing, which is very interesting, using a word processor to make visual images. We talk about Alfred Jari's influence on modernism, and I thought there was a lot of new, really, I think, provocative ideas there. And we also talk a lot about science and its relationship to art and its importance and it's a way of making things relevant. So, tons going on in this one. You can always go deeper with Brian. So, I hope you enjoy this. So, here is my interview with Brian Kotz. So, here is Brian Kotz, joining us live from Saskatoon. Brian, you're in Saskatoon right now.
1: Yeah, I'm still in Saskatoon.
0: (laughs) Good, good. How are things, how is the, the university?
1: Well, I mean, right now, everything is uh, sort of shut down. All the classes are online. They're talking about opening up everything in the winter, but I kind of doubt they're going to do that. I think that uh, it's kind of tense right now. Playoffs. uh, I think that uh, the university has uh, maybe there's some budgetary problems, too, because of because of covid. And uh, yeah, it's a it's it's an interesting experience. You know, I've been teaching online now two classes or a class and a half because the last class uh, the last uh, full class I taught was uh, truncated because of COVID. So halfway through, I had to uh, start putting together notes packages and transfer everything to online. Over the summer, I taught a poetry class, and yeah, it was totally online. I, I recorded lectures and barely had any interaction with students, really, beyond a forum. It was uh, not exactly a nightmare, but not great.
0: Gotcha, yeah. like So how's the interaction? Like, Would you consider it, yeah, it's not as good as a classroom, I assume?
1: Uh, on one hand, it isn't. On the other hand, though, it is, because the one nice thing about uh, the forum format, because I had a chat room or a chat forum, for my my students, uh, they were more willing to chime in and communicate if they were behind their screen. So when they're typing at a distance, they're a lot more open than they are when they're just sitting in a classroom. I thought that was kind of interesting.
0: That is interesting. I uh, For the Northern Minor, the newspaper that I sometimes work for, I was part of a little digital conference that they were doing. And I found that I was surprised at how relaxed I felt Mm -hmm. doing this sort of interview in front of like 200 people because it was almost like I wasn't getting the physical presence of being on a stage. It was just like it was all mediated by screens. So it was almost all the kind of nervous physiological factors just kind of weren't there in the same way, you know, like my adrenaline was up, but it wasn't like the you know, heart palpitations as you take the stage in front of 200 people or something.
1: Yeah, I, I totally get that. Uh, the problem I have with it is the, the actual lecture format. For me, if, if I want an interactive classroom where I have to build my lectures on their feedback, it's difficult to conduct a lecture when I'm recording a bunch of uh, essentially prefab interpretations of literature mixed with some of my own insights and then mm-hmm. just Putting it online and hoping somebody listens to this lecture, right? You don't get the, uh, the feedback there. But as far as student interactivity is, con, was concerned, I was surprised. More people were willing to type on the forum and more people were willing to share personal experiences on the forum because I think they felt safer behind, behind the screen.
0: And it's almost like you're invisible if you don't say anything. On, yeah. on, a, on with the screen, right? Like, I guess, would you do Zoom where everybody's sort of tiled, like, and you can see everybody at once? Or was it just like whoever's talking appears on the screen? Like, could you see everybody?
1: It was like a bulletin board posting situation where I would create a topic. On a forum, and then people would just type responses and okay. chat that way. The university's infrastructure isn't uh, powerful enough to handle everybody skyping or zooming at the same time. <laughs> right. I mean, this is actually testing the uh, the stability of all of our internet you know hopes and dreams right you know the 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 great cyberpunk revolution where everybody's going to be wired right this is testing it and it's not it's not really passing the test i mean lots of people are used to looking at youtube videos and playing video games but when you have a class of 50 people and ostensibly you're supposed to have 50 little tiles and everybody's talking at the same time the actual tech infrastructure crashes There's just way too much data being transferred.
0: Yeah, and it sounds like the, uh, like you were saying earlier, the budgets are really being hammered at these universities. I mean, you hear about this once in a while, you know, tuitions for international students, for Mm -hmm. example, which I think are a real cash cow, have probably halved, if not more. And then there's all the people who don't feel like with tuition being so expensive, and then they're offered Zoom classes. They say, maybe I'll just skip a year. and work and then maybe everything will be fine in a year
1: yeah there is that i mean i i know i don't know what's going to happen in the fall i've got a couple classes lined up i don't know how well the students are, how satisfied the students are going to be i mean they know i think going into it at this point that it's all going to be online it's going to be asynchronous which uh you know means that Basically, I throw everything into the void and they get around to looking at it whenever they get around to looking at it. And so you hope you hope they'll look at it. But so it's can't. not even live. It's not even live. Yeah, wow. uh, I, I come on at the what I decided to do is show up sort of by logging in during the, uh, the class period. And if anybody wants to email me or Skype me or anything, I'll be there to, to communicate with them one on one. But beyond that, everybody is just kind of left to their own devices.
0: That's pretty amazing. It's like the great courses. I mean, yeah. you watch a uh, lecture, and yeah, I guess if it's up to you can email the professor or Skype with the professor. Wow, That's pretty amazing
1: actually um, an interesting thing uh, over the summer class, the poetry class I taught, I had a German student. She was going to come into the u of s, but she got landlocked because of covid. So uh, basically, she took her entire class from 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 Germany. I don't know. I think maybe she might have even been in Berlin. Uh, that's funny. So we were just kind of communicating back and forth, and she was writing her stuff, and I was marking it. And she was all she was always just sort of in her little apartment in Germany. So that's cool too. You know, I mean, here you had somebody who literally is on you know the other side of the world taking a class, and there's really no there's no downside to that. I think you know. You can extend well, your reach, right? You
0: sure can. And it it kind of, uh, it really makes you start thinking. I mean, I imagine you already have started thinking about this. Like if you can start giving great lectures online, I mean, that's a whole, like, it seems like that's where everything's going to end up going. If you like project out two or three years, you're just going to have great professors, who, if you can give great classes, people will probably just sign up to these professors, I guess. Yeah, I don't know. Have you thought
1: much about that? Yeah, maybe, you know, try to do something like that. I mean, if Slavoj Žižek can sputter and mutter and stumble his way through, like, (laughs) two-hour-long marathon lectures, I can do the same. They don't make much sense. I can do the same thing.
0: Yeah, and how was the poetry class? What what were you teaching? Just an introduction, or was it something more specialized?
1: No, it was just an introduction. But I mean, I ended up, uh, you know, it's got to be a survey because of the way the university works with the intro classes. So you've got to hit a bunch of benchmarks. But at the same time, by the end of it, I was teaching uh, avant-garde stuff. I had, you know, Gertrude Stein and uh, Alfred Jari and things like that, because I've got enough, right? So I actually had a few students who were really interested in Jari? They'd never heard of Jari before, right? And so I'm talking about Dr. Faustrol and Pataphysics and and Perubu, and uh, they were kind of drawn to that. It sort of opened their mind. And Gertrude Stein had a lot of uh, a lot of resentment amongst more traditionally minded <laughs> students, but there were some who just loved the the kind of crazed word salad aspect of of her writing, you know. And you combine that with little packages on cubist art and surrealism and pataphysics that they can download if they want to, right? I scoured the internet for cool images and shit like that and uh, just sort of threw it out there, right? And some students, they they fell in love with it. Others couldn't care less. But, But there were students that were turned on by that stuff.
0: Yeah, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think you probably, I'm sure you introduced me to Jari Way back when and yeah, if your imagination is so inclined it just lights up your imagination. I mean the whole especially Fostrel and that image of him sailing across the streets of the cement streets of Paris in a skiff.
1: Yeah. Made out uh, of water. Made out of what? Water. Was it made out of water? I think it had to be made out of water because he was traveling through cement, so I think his boat had to be made out of water. Right. Yeah, anyway,
0: yeah. It I could uh, just captures in the the ape, I can't remember his name, who always re- replied, ha-ha, yeah, Jari, yeah. I mean, he really, that aesthetic still is, uh, still one of the most powerful uh, that I can think of, actually. And what's funny is, like, I don't, it's not like I read his writings all the time and love them. It's just, it's really about, for me, it's about his aesthetic. Mm-hmm. This kind of imaginative yeah just uh out of this world sort of imaginative thing just of reversals and playfulness but maybe it's just really philosophical at the same time
1: Mm
0: -hmm. uh which i liked but not in an overly serious way like in just a very playful way yeah so i don't know do you have any thoughts on any deeper thoughts on Jari and what why do you like Jari?
1: One of the reasons I like Jari is uh, when I really, I mean, I, I when I read uh, Ubu Ra in high school, I thought it was cool and sort of neat, but other than just being sort of a big fuck you to everything, I thought, yeah, this is this guy's okay, but uh, I kind of wanted more. Once I read stuff like Fosterall though, uh, and uh, Jari started... Uh, he, he really started clicking with me at that point. I mean, Jerry has his specially bred bacteria that keep him shaved and cleaned, right? And immediately mm-hmm. I'm thinking there's nanotechnology. You yeah, know, there's science, uh, that science, science theme. And, stuff, and it's high, and it's for, for the 19th, early 20th century sort of aesthetic, it's yeah. really high-functioning science. You know, the idea of specially bred bacteria to keep you clean is funny, but I mean, it's also the, it's also the roots of stuff like nanotechnology. And that's what really got me. The way Jari would uh, fuse this kind of extremely absurd science or proto-science or speculations on science with his crazy vision and how... You know, to, not to sound too pretentious, but I mean, how some of that stuff is starting to in a weird way come true, or people are starting to explore the ideas that Jari put out about manipulating the physical world and changing the physical world in a kind of post-human or transhuman way without even really realizing it. Jari doesn't realize that's what he's doing. And scientists these days that are exploring things like matter manipulation, et cetera, they're not they don't realize that this is the, the 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 genesis of some of this stuff is things that filtered through Alfred Jari. And I mm-hmm. thought that was really interesting, you know, that here's this guy who's had this enormous effect, this invisible effect on the scientific world, and also to a certain extent, an enormous effect on art, too. I mean, you have all of the experimental weird you know, the surrealism, the cubism, dadaism all this stuff comes out of Jari. Modernism comes out of Jari after a fashion. I think uh, James Joyce, his writing starts getting weirder and weirder after he meets Gertrude Stein or at least reads some of Gertrude Stein's writing. Gertrude Stein probably didn't meet Jari, but she's sort of an after effect of the the stuff that Jari set into motion, right? And even people who like the the hardcore realists and the postmodernists and the anti-postmodernists or traditionalists of today, they themselves are either intentionally or unintentionally embracing aspects of Jari's vision or rebelling against it directly. You know, the hardcore, hard-nosed realist writers and artists are rebelling against the craziness that Jari set in motion. And so he's enormously influential and people don't recognize this because he is a largely obscure figure. He didn't live very long and he had a brief but powerful impact with the right people at the right time. And then that that his tendrils just kind of expanded throughout uh, throughout the, the world.
0: Yeah, he is a bit of an artist's artist in a sense, yeah. right? Like, uh, And it's interesting how you say how important he was to modernism because I don't disagree with it because I think like a lot of his writing was in the 1890s, mm-hmm. right? Isn't I that right?
1: 90s, very early so, 20s, I mean, 1900s.
0: Yeah, like – I did think he, maybe uh, Faustral is it's 1899, 1904. Like, it's, it's early, right? Yeah. And so Cubism isn't that long after. And you know that Jari was probably already being passed around in the sort of avant-garde circles. You know, French literature in general was sort of held in pretty high esteem, like L'Autre Amand, you know, mm-hmm. who wrote Maldor, the Black Bible of Surrealism, which Magritte loved and everybody else. Huge impact. Uh, so yeah. Anyway, that that's pretty interesting. So yeah. So there is still an appetite for Jari, and I'm not surprised. I think probably a lot of those students in Saskatoon and Germany are probably pretty grateful to actually learn that stuff. And and what as far as the university, anything else is Peter Stoichev, our former English professor. He's the president, I think, so at the University it's of it's Saskatchewan. It's about, yeah. has, has he been making speeches or anything, or have you heard from him?
1: Uh, I haven't really heard directly from him. I've been focused more on just getting everything in order so I can teach my my couple classes in the fall right Mm -hmm. now. I want to set everything up so it runs smoothly. So to a certain extent, I've been keeping, I've been steering clear of a lot of university politics, probably for the best, because that sort of thing tends to drive me a bit insane. So
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, university politics, though, it's almost like it has a tabloid like quality that it's something I just never get tired of hearing about at the same time. It, like you said, there were layoffs.
1: Like, it doesn't affect are there you directly those it affects me? So, <laughs> it does affect you, or it doesn't? It, does, it doesn't affect you as directly as it affects me. <laughs> but yeah, um, uh, I, I don't know. But there reason. are layoffs. There have been layoffs. Yeah, and there have been a, there have been a bunch of packages that uh, the university is putting together to try to uh, coax um, tenured or sort of high high level individuals uh, to, to retire. Because uh, I think the, uh, the again, I think the budgets are getting stretched a little bit. Totally,
0: I, with all the huge amount of administrators and all that stuff, uh, I would think you're right.
1: One nice thing about this is, uh, you know, the, the, the COVID uh, scare is uh, at least kickstarting types of scientific endeavor again in in big in sort of large scale ways even if it's only attempts to make vaccines people are starting to pay attention to what scientists are doing in the world a little bit more and science is becoming a bit more important to people again it's not quite as abstract and lofty Uh, people want they want their vaccine i mean other than you know the the anti-vaxxers who don't believe that viruses exist or, or whatever. Uh, but people who, are, who aren't insane want their vaccines and they're starting to pay attention to what science is doing and uh, te- what technology is capable of. And I think that's a good, if there's a good thing that came out of COVID, I think that's one of them.
0: I totally agree with that. And in, in fact, like, yeah, I think it's actually in a weird way, it's given more credibility to science because it had been so under attack for the global warming thing for the last twenty years that it was almost just becoming like a rhetorical. It was becoming for politicians like you. It was okay to dismiss scientists yeah. as you know, and and science. And what I think the COVID thing has done is with all these guys who are saying, "Oh, you don't need to mask, mask up." Like science is science and nature are basically humiliating. These guys who are heavy on rhetoric and low on facts, you know, and low on science. And these science skeptics are getting brutally punished. It's a brutal lesson, it it seems to me.
1: If they acknowledge that it's a lesson, but eventually they'll all get sick and they'll have to be forced to acknowledge it. It's uh, interesting,
0: right? Because, I mean, there's this whole tradition of even just anti-evolution type stuff that still exists. There's a bit of a weakness there or like in a sense for me like politically science has become my new main issue Mm -hmm. it's like that's what i vote on if a politician is anti-science like they're i don't care what party they're from like it's secondary to me compared to the economy that's what this whole pandemic has shown for me it's like that if you're great on the economy but you don't believe in science well uh, that's not too good you know like i don't want to i don't support that like that's to me that's less important the economy than science
1: well i mean what's good the economy if we're all dying of a plague yeah or if we (laughs) can't even do simple
0: things that science is telling us because we have our heads up our ass you know so far that we just can't even you know you know like if we don't trust science and we're not going to make decisions based on science Mm -hmm. you know where does that leave us yeah we can have you know, even our economy. At what point does it, it? It the economy will start to suffer as it has. Look at the U.S., which is a catastrophe right now. So yeah. So what else is new? Uh, how's uh, how's life in the city? Uh, everything good? Uh, are you going out much, or are you staying in most of the time?
1: I tend to stay in a lot of the time. I mean, I I do get a little bit squirrely, so sometimes I have to go to the occasional bookstore or get groceries, but. I tend to stay in. I mean, we don't have a lot of uh, COVID in the city right now. And I kind of, I I like that. But I mean, the more people get together, the worse things are going to get right now. I mean, uh, just uh, recently, there have been some spikes because of Hutterite colonies in Saskatchewan who weren't essentially weren't following the covid guidelines and now there's been a huge upswing uh mostly uh, in out on the prairies there's the occasional case in in Saskatoon but i mean i don't want to i don't want to be around people who are going to get me sick right i'm in yeah i'm starting to move into that demographic where this will actually deeply affect me although then again there are a lot of young people who are getting this crap too now so
0: yeah it's interesting out here like, in, I guess, late March and most of April, everybody, like, the streets got really quiet. There was basically the full lockdown. And now, the last two times I went out, people are trying to shake my hand. Mm-hmm. People want to hug. They're <laughs> trying to share drinks. And it's just like, yeah, like, you just get the sense this thing's coming back.
1: Yeah. No, nobody like wants there's... to hug me, So that's good. It's the, the, one of the few times I've been grateful that nobody wants to hug me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like... And so, yeah, like I don't even want to go out because all of a sudden people are they're even insulted if you don't want to shake their hands and they're making fun of the little elbow thing. And it's like, okay, it's like they're embarrassed to be cautious. Yeah, that's what I sort of see out here. And it's like, that's a bit of a weird thing. Yeah. like I mean, as if. Yeah. But I guess maybe it's just it feels unnatural for people. To just that, you know uh, when
1: first when everything first shut down in Saskatoon it was kind of creepy. I went out a few times because occasionally you do have to go to the grocery store or get a bit of get a bit of hardware or something for your your computer. And uh, you know you're driving around and there are no cars or maybe there's three cars. You've been driving for an hour and you've seen three or four cars. You go downtown and the only people it's, that around are all people. You know and it's, it's, it's that really quiet. It's not that quiet right now but when it first locked down it was it was kind of like right. an apocalyptic post apocalyptic movie.
0: Yeah, even yeah, same with Berlin. It was just like yeah, you'd see these famous landmarks and even still like it, Italy, like I hear it's just totally dead and quiet and I mean these countries like Greece and Italy, I think they're getting a few tourists, but even I think Spain just locked down again. So it's it's a real wrench in the global economy is i describe it as like sand being poured into the engine of global capitalism and it's uh another interesting thing is just how long it's going on for like it's like we keep expecting that one day we'll wake up and it's all you know starting to disappear it's almost like that's what i see in the behavior is that Mm -hmm. it's starting to disappear it's like people are bored with the story yeah and it, it, and so but it's not <laughs> it's so yeah it's kind of it's interesting well, it's
1: reality right and this is one of the fir- first times in ages where people have been forced to acknowledge that there's a real physical world beyond their own perceptions you know yeah. as much as as much as i like stuff like baudrillard and as much as i like a lot of postmodern rambling about the textualization of fill in the blank, there's still a hard physical world behind all of that. You know, Baudrillard can talk about the death of the real, all he wants, but it's still, until we get to the point where where you have nanotechnology that can physically change things on the quantum level, there's still going to be a hard physical reality behind everything that underpins it all. And I think a lot of times, people, we we've lost sight of that. Uh, either the on both the left and the right, you know, for the right, everything seems like, well, it'll just be a sort of a status quo. Or if they're deeply religious, well, God will take care of everything and everybody. Uh, On the left, everything is social, everything is textual, everything is subjective, everything is fluid, forgetting that underneath it all, there's still that hard, physical, real world that everybody has to interact with that doesn't actually care about any of our ideology or any of our politics or our religious beliefs or anything. It's just a real natural world. And it does what it does for its own reasons, if it even has reasons. And they may not actually dovetail with ours, you know? And uh, people are starting to, at least some people, are starting to really have to face that. And that's creating a kind of rebellion because people don't want to stop to think that, you know, maybe we're not the pinnacle of everything. Maybe society and social philosophy isn't the pinnacle of everything. Maybe we're not at the top level of all of creation and God created the universe for us. No, there's this other world that if if it decides it's time for us to die, it's just going to kill us all. And there's not a damn thing we can do about it, because it it supersedes us. So uh, I think people people are being made very uncomfortable by this. And like you said, everybody's waking up thinking, well, it's a dream. It'll be over. It'll be over. No, it's not going to be over until it, it's over. And it is the thing that calls the shots, not us. You know, if it takes a year to make a vaccine, if it takes two years to make a vaccine, if we can never make a vaccine, that's dependent on the nature of the virus. That's not dependent on anything, anything that relates to us as subjective, social, philosophical, textual, manipulative beings.
0: I I absolutely agree with you. I actually want to write an essay about this very thing. I was going to call it The Revenge of the Real. And Mm -hmm. to your point, it's like the hyper-real world of simulation and that everything is basically rhetoric and persuasion and that the mass media has triumphed somehow uh, over reality that's all been sort of undermined by mm-hmm. this you know the revenge of the real that there is still a real and it actually calls the shots as you say and uh yeah there's something kind of like it's a huge tragedy there there you know as we all know and there are you know but there is a kind of a truthfulness that comes with the the virus that it's kind of reminded us about reality <clears throat> and and in that respect there is a kind of uh there is a silver lining to this thing mm-hmm. i guess is my point
1: have you ever read darkness by byron the poem no, is that a poem yeah you should check it out i teach it it tends to go over fairly well with uh science-minded students or in some cases, environmentally-minded students. Sometimes environmental activists, or students who are kind of environmentally activist, uh, activists, they don't like it, in part because basically it's a poem where the sun goes out. And it was inspired by a volcano that blew in the 1900s that blanketed Europe with ash and basically created a, a a year without a summer, where the uh, the clouds the skies were just dark. Lamps had to be lit. Crops were failing. At the same time, there were sunspots. There was huge sunspot activity that could be seen by the naked eye. So individuals uh, in like in London and all around Europe who were covered with this uh, you know sort of faced with this uh, this sort of volcanic winter that never ended. They uh, would everything is dark everything's grim and cloudy all the crops are dying because there's no there's not enough light for proper photosynthesis uh the weather is in turmoil and then they can look at the sun and they can see these blobs on the sun like the sun is starting to get consumed with cancer and it caused a kind of mass panic and on top of it all byron's relationship with his wife dissolved in the same year or around that time too And this all inspired Byron to write this poem about the sun going out. And in the poem, it's a fairly, it's it's a short enough read, but it's kind of a symbolic narrative uh, poem. Basically, the sun goes out for no apparent reason, and then the earth is just plunged into darkness and turmoil humanity desperate for heat and sunlight just starts to just burn everything that it can for light, hoping that the sun uh, will come back. People are praying for the sun to come back. The sun doesn't come back. They fall into despair. Other people are kind of gleefully nihilistic that the sun has gone out and everybody's going to die. And they're, they're, they're sort of the happiest of the bunch because they get to sort of go out cackling in the ruins. Other people who are just sort of hoping for the sun to come back and who are saving stuff and saving their resources realize the sun's never going to come back and all of their hoarding has been for nothing because they can't, they can't, they're, they're just extending the misery. And the poem basically details the planet Earth slowly freezing because the sun goes out. Nature itself is turned into turmoil. All the animals are dying. Everything just dies. And uh, the the end of the poem just simply has, you know, dark the universe is darkness. The sun has gone out. The earth still exists as a frozen blob, and every organism on the earth is dead. And there's no reason for it. Uh, there's kind of maybe a biblical parody going on where, you know, uh, implying you know, that the beginning of Genesis, God says, let there be light. Well, maybe one day God will say, let there be darkness. You know, either God creates light for whatever god's reason is maybe god will create darkness for whatever god's reason is we don't know and the general gist of the whole poem is that nature or the universe has its own rules and that everything that we believe about nature everything that we think about nature in the poem there's parts uh, byron addresses the idea that you know our philosophies all of our needs all of our cares All of this stuff is dependent upon a nature that allows us to exist. And if nature just suddenly changes so we're no longer able to exist, everything that we believe about the universe is not going to help us. We will just simply cease to exist. And all of our philosophies, our politics, our belief systems, everything is the result of a sense of security and a sense of feeling safe in the world that we know there will be another day tomorrow. It's a very interesting poem. You should check it out, man.
0: I definitely want to check that out, and it's it almost sounds like an early kind of proto science fictiony type thing, just in terms of its content. Do you think yeah. that's fair assessment? I mean, look at Mary Shelley. Same thing. I mean, it's pretty science fictiony. These yeah. some of the romantic stuff.
1: Yeah, you know, it's sort of a yeah proto apocalyptic kind of sci-fi narrative you, oh sorry the interesting thing about it though is that in the end humanity doesn't flourish right in most end of the world right, scenarios right. there's always the scrappy band of survivors that starts society over again no byron yeah. says that's not gonna happen that's bullshit if nature a if nature decides we're dead we're dead there's nothing that we can do to stop it
0: yeah that's pretty awesome that you can actually do that in a poem It makes me re-interested in poetry again. Not that I I like the epic poetry and all that, but yeah, poetry, I've sort of, it's not like I sit down and read poetry very often, you know, but that's the great thing about teaching it is you're kind of forced to, and all of a sudden you find all these gems. I I was going to say with Alfred Jari as well, there's also that sort of scientific themed Mm -hmm. literature. And I mean, that's maybe the real better way of putting it because science fiction is maybe saying too much it's science-based
1: yeah Yeah, it's science-based it's scientific yeah yeah without really being what we know as sci-fi it's inspired by science but briefly back to byron though just to my initial point before i started to rant the students who read this poem i mean there's there are students who just look at it and go whatever it's a poem i got to read it because the guy there's teaching it so there's that cohort. We can kind of ignore them. But then there's the ones who are deeply offended by it because it argues that there's simply nothing we can do to save the environment if the environment decides it's time for us to go. They still believe for all of their kind of uh, equality of nature, that human beings are a part of nature, nature is a part of humanity. We're all kind of interrelated. They still believe that we're at the top of the ladder and that what we do has a deep, deep, meaningful effect on nature. And so the idea that if the sun goes out, there's nothing we can do about it, and it's nothing we personally caused either, it's just the sun winked out one day in Byron's poem, that upsets them because it upsets the idea that for all of their sort of enviro-egalitarianism, Byron's still saying, you're not at the top. There's really nothing you can do. Planet Earth ah. is still okay at the end of darkness. It's just in a different form that doesn't support humanity. The planet Earth is now a frozen ball, but the planet Earth doesn't care if it's a frozen ball or if it's a lush, lush Edenic forest. The planet Earth has, is the planet Earth. It doesn't care what form it's in. Human beings care what form, it, what form the planet Earth is in, but that's still something that comes out of a sense of
0: it's like a morality play it's like yeah. it, it's it's like actually you can't fix it and and that's the the thing that sets them off maybe yeah. it's like the yeah. it's like no there's got to be a moral it's got to be a kind of heroic narrative where at the end we save the day yeah you know and we can do that and you're saying there is no heroic narrative yeah. possible you know when you look at byron's poem and therefore the implication is maybe the so-called global warming or climate change uh, is not fixable.
1: Yeah, it you may know? be or, uh, simply like fixable That's the point, animation. it may not be fixable, we can't tell. And yeah. even if we can fix it, there's still entropy, you know. The
0: fact yeah, like eventually this, the sun is going out at a certain yeah. point.
1: Eventually the sun will explode and we'll all be gobbled up, and we may all be dead long before that happens. But the or, And even if the sun wasn't going to burn out, Uh, swell and then contract and then explode even if that didn't happen if the sun would just the sun will eventually kind of run out of energy the planet earth if the universe is a closed system the planet earth will eventually run out of usable energy because the law of entropy states that all usable energy turns into a form that's no longer usable by us Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that this unusable energy may not be usable by some other natural phenomenon, but it's still nothing that we can use, and there's really nothing we can do to prevent this. We can slow entropy down by borrowing energy from another system, which may speed up entropy in that system, and that eventually, temporarily, it slows our entropy, but ultimately, entropy always accelerates. It's kind of like borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, right? Uh, Entropy is a constant downward slide and now this is a downward slide that takes billions of years so obviously i mean we've got a long way to go before the planet earth becomes unsustainable but the idea that we can have a direct impact forever on the planet i think threatens the uh, the belief system of some individuals who do believe that everything is kind of even if they if even if they acknowledge that oh well you know in large time scales things, there will be a point where human beings do just sort of evolve out of this form, or maybe we will go extinct 100 million years from now, but we can make our lives good at this point. There's still that little bit of the back of their mind, I think, that might argue that no, but still there's there's this sense of eternity. We as human beings have a sense of eternity that we can create something that's eternal, that we are eternal, and that the universe still revolves around us. So this poem threatens students who have that kind of belief system. And on the other hand, I do have students who look at the poem and go, shit, I never thought of it that way. That for everything that we do to the universe, the universe doesn't actually care what we do to it. We do things to the universe that affect us directly, but the planet Earth doesn't care what form it's in. You know, Even if we blew it into little chunks... Eventually, those chunks would maybe go out and, you know, join the Kuiper belt or something. And those bits or maybe they would crash to Mars or do something to Mars or they'd fall into the sun over time. Either way, the chunks aren't going to care. You know, they're going to be in a different form of of, of physical existence, but it's not going to matter to them it matters to us though and that's the that's the interesting thing and maybe sometimes it's 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 useful to step back and look at the really big picture where we're divorced from everything and just sort of take a look at the universe as impassionately and as objectively as possible you can never really be totally objective obviously because you have to imagine the universe without you which still means you're doing it for you, but it's a useful exercise, I think, to step back and think maybe the universe isn't this human-centric thing.
0: Well, it's kind of the the history of intellectual ideas to a certain degree, at least with, you know, Galileo and Copernicus and, you know, as a, you know, away from this heliocentric model of the universe, it it is kind of like this uh, more and more displacing humanity from the center, but there is that intuition and that urge whether it's the greeks or the christians for example mm-hmm. uh, that want to put humanity at the center like that's the intuitive viewpoint that's the, yeah. the default we might yeah. say and even now people are we go oh well consciousness makes us special and even now people are trying to you know say well maybe we're not so special in that regard yeah. and you know it's one more displacement from the center you know
1: like panpsychism or or uh, animal animal consciousness uh... Just consciousness in
0: general, people will say, well, we're special as humans because we have a rational faculty, we have language, we have consciousness of a, we might say of a, we have self-consciousness, let's put it that way. And we are supposedly more aware of ourselves and probably than animals. And, uh, yeah, I don't know. I I wasn't talking that deeply, but, uh, just this idea that we're even more, there's, we're a little less special, even maybe in that regard, mm-hmm. uh, at least according to maybe some of the neuroscientists. And I don't know if they're really, I, I actually wrote an essay kind of not saying that their view is wrong. I mean, I basically equate, I mean, it's a pretty persuasive view. I mean, I think the general view, I think from most neuroscientists is this I'd call it the unemergent view, Mm -hmm. uh, which is that ultimately once the nervous system achieves a certain degree of complexity, particularly I would think through the perceptual apparatus that consciousness emerges as an emergent property. Yeah. Right? And I don't think that's a crazy idea. No. Um, My sort of issue with that i don't know if i'd call it like an occam's razor argument i don't know if that's appropriate but it's not i think this my sort of simpler way but albeit less more crazy way is you start with story like if there's anything from the perspective of consciousness i see what consciousness is to me is a story making machine Mm -hmm. it's uh How am I aware of anything? It's through story that we tell ourselves from raw sense perception. We turn that into something. And that is, to me, what consciousness is. So my kind of crazy little essay that I put online is basically on we need to start with story and then work from there, which is a very, you know, I don't know where that gets us, but I think it's a much to me, it's a simpler approach, and therefore, it's maybe a little bit sturdier. Mm-hmm. In in that, that respect,
1: I know what you mean. I know what you. Mean. I, I can't remember. There's somebody else who was arguing that at one point. Uh, I think they framed it in framed it in use of metaphor or something. I can't remember who it was who was who I was I was reading who argued something along those lines. If
0: you oh. do remember, send Send me the thing I'd be curious to see. Yeah, because there are also like I sort of wrote that thing without doing too much research on what other people had to say on that, mm-hmm. just because I wanted to get I sort of had a fully formed sort of thought that I just wanted to put into an essay. But, yeah, I mean, there are, uh, you know, books on narrative is everything and, you know, this sort of thing. So which isn't that far from Sort of where I was coming from, I was sort of applying it to consciousness specifically in a sense, but yeah, so it's anyways, it's an interesting uh, talk speaking of writing are are you writing much these days? I mean, I've always known you as a writer
1: uh off and on i've been I've started playing with kind of a novel thing uh, that's uh, autobiographical, and I was basically writing notes to try to mm-hmm. edit these things together into a story and then i realized maybe the notes are actually <laughs> good enough on their own so it's sort of a collection of weird fragments i'm finding it difficult to really sit down and think of anything in a kind of long form you know 20 chapter 40 paragraph kind of uh, kind of mode right now everything is or you know 20 page chapter 40 paragraph kind of mode everything is uh is all sort of chopped up and fragmentary
0: i like short these days
1: like mm-hmm. i think short
0: you know it's sort of like the atrocity exhibition with not to always default to ballard but uh, with his condensed novels mm-hmm. uh, to me that's a very modern thing because you don't need to spend all day reading it like it it's kind of like people like you know you people have been talking about this for a while now people don't really read books anymore like who's going to Let's say you write your forty chapter, two thousand page or twelve hundred page book. Who's reading it? You know, it's like, and if they're going to read a twelve hundred page book or a seven hundred page book, they'll probably read Moby Dick. You know, like, uh, I don't know. Do Do you think because you read, think a, read a, read a lot of books,
1: Stephen King or James Patterson at this
0: point? Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I would think it would be really hard for an a non famous name to write a twelve hundred page book and have it be read.
1: Yeah. But I don't know.
0: Maybe if you make it brilliant enough,
1: now, I don't get to write book publishers. I don't think the publishing industry cares about brilliance. I don't think the publishing industry cares about anything beyond something that can move units now. I think and you're right. The only things that can move units, generally speaking, are either uh the established uh writers or somebody who has kind of a a way in because they know the established writers or they have a publisher friend or or an editor friend or something. That's about it. I mean, I know people, there are people who bitch and complain about all of the, uh, I mean, if you go to a bookstore in Saskatoon, you know, if you go to a bookstore, James Patterson has an entire goddamn shelf. (laughs) You know, I mean, there's who's, who's
0: James Patterson again? Is he like he a writes, thriller
1: writer? He writes thrillers, and he he writes you out he writes his own thrillers under his own name, and he writes outlines that he farms out to a ghostwriter. So he's yeah. his own novels, and then he's got his novels with collaborators, and this allows him to have dozens and dozens of books.
0: And Does he go under pseudonyms or is it always James no, Patterson?
1: Oh, It's James Patterson or it's James Patterson and, you know, Jenny Craig or whatever. You but know. It's almost
0: like an, it reminds me of Jeff Koons. You know, he makes his little image in Photoshop and then he gives it to all his assistants to paint yeah. a hyper-realistic oil painting, large scale.
1: Yeah, that's exactly you know what I mean. You know, that's that's what it's like. And if you're a good enough James Patterson collaborator in that, if you're 500-page crappy thriller if it sells enough units, maybe you might be able to put your own name on a book that'll get published, you know, and market right. through the Patterson machine. But I mean, he's the, he's a big writer. You know, Stephen King is still a huge writer. I mean, and I don't hate Stephen King, but I mean, damn it. He's written enough books already. They're all the same book over and over again now.
0: And they, I've never actually read Stephen King other than how to write. I think I read half that.
1: He's good up to a point he's got a good sense of a kind of middle American working class tone. And he's, he writes sort of really nice practical, uh, again, sort of middle American working class characters, but he's got the same half dozen types that he keeps on going back to. You know, there's the sensitive rough hewn kind of country guy. There's the school jock there's the abused or somehow traumatized girlfriend or wife. There's the little kid who's innocent, who loses his innocence and the other kids, the other little kid who's picked on. You know, there's the shopkeeper who's the friendly shopkeeper who's always reliable. You know, it's the same kinds of things. And then there's the evil guy who's just malevolently evil because he's been inhabited by beings from another dimension, you know, and then there's a half dozen or dozen more of that trope. And he just kind of recycles things over and over again, and it's good for, a, for up to a point. He can hit interesting emotional emotional beats because he does have an authenticity to his writing. But I mean, mm-hmm. enough is enough already. You, know,
0: you don't he, get the sense that you're going to get like some huge revolution coming out of the Stephen King. You know, like, and he's written that, like you say a ton of huge books.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, he's a proven commodity. So therefore. There's always right. going to be another one, even when he manages to piss off his, his base, or at least a large chunk of his base, because he's always sold to uh, sort of right-leaning Americans, right? So, well, that's uh, funny, even, because even he's, pretty,
0: of he's one of the most outspoken anti-Trump people, is Disney. Yeah,
1: name, yeah right? he really is. So, I mean, he has been, even, even though he's managed to piss on all those people, he still uh, he still sells, you know. He doesn't still an sell American
0: things. icon, yeah. He, I guess he's allowed to do it, maybe. Oh, but yeah. the Dixie chicks weren't—that's for sure.
1: You know, I don't begrudge King exactly, but it's like enough is enough. And I mean, he's been around long enough that uh, now a lot of people who are writing a contemporary literature consider him an uh, an influence. And so, I mean, I guess good for him. He's he's happy that now maybe the literary establishment is taking notice of him finally. But it's like, you've told your stories, you know, I don't hate your writing. I have a fond memory of reading a number of his books when I was younger, but it's like, you know, hang it up already. You don't have anything else to say.
0: So speaking of contemporary writers, uh, are you excited by anything right now? Like you're really into, is it Gene Wolfe
1: for a while? Gene Wolfe for a while. I'm kind of out of, out of Wolfe. Are you excited by anything or do you go back or what do you do? Right now, what have I been trying to read? I'm trying to get into Richard Powers. He's a little more obscure, although his most, most recent book hit it really big because I think it just sort of came out at a politically advantageous time. He's a writer who writes novels about science. He wanted to be a computer programmer. And he actually, I think he even became a computer programmer. I'm not sure. And then he started writing novels. And so each of his novels deals in some way with, uh, with scientific phenomena. Uh, the Goldbug Variation is all about is all about DNA and uh, sort of the sequencing of the genome. He's got a novel called Galatia 2.0, which is about artificial intelligence. He has uh, novels about scientists uh, and doctors exploring neurochemistry. And his most recent book is called The Overstory, and it's all about trees. And it's kind of from the perspective of the trees, it sets up a bunch of characters and then puts them into motion as they kind of they start to interact with things that are environmentally uh, inflected or environmentally inspired. But the the general tone of it is sort of a cool, detached, almost sort of well, it's it's a tree like viewpoint where mm-hmm. we have characters, but they're all kind of flat. And they have their, their politics and they've got their interests, but there's a hint throughout the novel that, well, this is just kind of a little blip in the system because the, the, the novel itself is more concerned with the perspective of these entities that have been around for millions of years and millions and millions of years. And human beings are just a little, we're just sort of in a little anomaly. So uh, I'm trying to get into him, but I can't. <laughs> Sounds interesting yeah it's like a novel that's trying to it's trying to be from the point of view of trees. I got interested in him because I started looking up biosemiotics a few a couple years ago okay, and what's
0: fill us in what is biosemiotics
1: Biosemiotics, as I understand it, is essentially uh there well there's a few branches of it, but ultimately it's a way of looking at the sign systems or the communication systems of all entities, like all entities, non-human entities. There are scientists that explore biosemiotics in a deeply scientific way, where they just talk about information transfer between proteins. And then biosemioticians from the humanities (laughs) sort of sneak into the sciences and start trying to monkey with everything, pissing off the scientific biosemioticians. I'm sure... Somebody wants, sure. to read, you know, somebody who wants to talk about the information transfer between proteins doesn't suddenly want to have to read a whole bunch of fucking Deleuze, right? Exactly.
0: It's like, keep your critical theory out of our biosemiotics, thanks. But if you're going to call it biosemiotics, you're kind of open for, for attack, I guess.
1: Yeah, exactly. For, for see, critique. It's, it's hilarious, and I think it's really interesting because, on one hand, you know. I don't really care too much about what, uh, you know, Theodore Adorno might have to say about the mating rituals of the caterpillar. But on the other hand, it's sort of an interesting way of trying to bridge b- the humanities and the, uh, the hard sciences in a way, because both To a certain extent, both the humanities and a certain subset of science do deal with communication.
0: I was going to say, like, language is like, I, I don't think it's just a human thing. No. You know, like, I think anybody, if you really think about it, like, everything is in communication. Even trees are in communication. Like, there is this kind of, I don't know if I'd call it a feedback loop, but there is a dialogue between everything in nature and everything is kind of talking to each other and birds it's not that humans are the only ones that have a tongue you know like birds chirp and all animals can communicate it seems like i don't know about insects but even them they're making noises
1: look at look at bees and look at ants They, they, they 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 problem solve and they communicate on some level
0: yeah so it's it actually sounds like a potentially rich field i mean yeah you know it's interesting how science has come up over and over again throughout this discussion is this kind of uh, you know, grounding of, of knowledge and of interesting things, a grounding of interesting things almost. And yeah, and that's what I like about this biosemiotics thing. Again, and it's almost like that revenge of the real, like it's it's a little bit more real when you're dealing with science. Yeah, like That's what I like about science. It's a little bit, you're actually dealing with something that's not just a whole bunch of ideas that someone put together that makes some philosophy that really don't have anything to do with reality. They're interesting as human nature, a a specimen of what the human imagination has created. And that in itself is maybe a reflection of nature once removed. But ultimately, yeah, that's why I I like science because you're dealing with real things, just like talk about a novel about DNA. That's interesting. And so this biosemiotics thing, that sounds like a nice way of I can see why some of the English or the critical theory people are sort of might be eager to jump on something like that because again like you say maybe it's a way out for the humanities in a way that they can sort of ground a lot of what they're talking about in science and give some discipline to critical theory because the problem is people just start talking about whatever yeah and uh, they go all over the place and you're just like it feels like it's not worth your time a lot of the time because it's like well you think that and what is that based on yeah, exactly. you know, and the, anybody can say anything. It's like politics. Yeah. You know, so so anyway, sir continue Is, Was there anything else on biosemiology? I mean,
1: so so well, the idea of just uh everything has a kind of communication uh, ability to communicate. Everything trades or generates signs amongst one, you know, amongst entities. And I just think that's really interesting. Uh and you're mentioning birds a little while ago and uh, did you know crows this is something i read a while ago crows you know they use tools right they they use twigs to dig and stuff like that and different crows in different parts of the countries in which crows can be found they uh, they use twigs in specific ways that are that are unique to their communities and if you introduce crows to different crow communities Say if I took some crows from Saskatchewan and moved them down to Florida, the the crows from Saskatchewan would teach the Floridian crows how to dig with twigs. The That's Saskatchewan crazy. and the Floridian fro- crows would teach the Saskatchewan crows how to dig their way. That crows seem to have a kind of again, sort of, it's not as maybe expansive. As human culture, but they seem to have a kind of culture that somehow different groups of crows figure out how to use twigs in specific ways. And I was reading something about, uh, what was it, fruit bats early? I think actually it was earlier today, or was it last night? Yeah, it was late last night. Apparently, fruit bats have a series of squeaks, have like several different types of squeaks for different kinds of phenomena where they will squeak in certain ways to debate whether where they should hang in a cave. And they'll have little arguments hmm. and, and sort of argue about where they should be in the cave. They will squeak in different ways to different members of their families and their communities and stuff like that. It's something that uh, scientists discovered by using, a t- using some sort of algorithm to sort of decode all the squeaks. Cause, I mean, squeaks sound like squeaks to us, right? But a computer can differentiate. And there are different kinds of, I guess, phrases, I guess you could call them, for different kinds of things that are important to fruit bats. And the tones of these phrases will change depending on the familiarity of the bats with one another. That uh, fruit bats that are close together will squeak. You know, they're that are friendly with one another will squeak at each other in a certain way. Others that are kind of socially distant with one another will squeak at each other in a certain way. That there are all these weird nuances to bat squeaks that suggest that again they have a kind of language.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting, and it. In a weird way, it's unsurprising once you think of it. But, all, yeah. but traditionally, we do just think of humans as having language, but no. It's a very interesting. And uh, so you are telling me you got rid of all your Twitter. I was really enjoying, you yeah. know, when I would check in, your Microsoft Word drawings is almost like our paintings. <laughs> You're the only person I know that made Microsoft Word paintings. Did you actually delete everything, or did, are there, is there a record somewhere?
1: Oh, no, I've got them all on. I, can, oh, I, can good. All good. On. I just got sick of Twitter because Twitter's... <laughs> Twitter's just such a crazy cesspool of, of rage these days and paranoia. I just got kind of fed up with it. I mean, nobody's noticing my stuff anyway, so I guess I don't really have to worry about being attacked by, by Twitter trolls. But I don't know. I just sort of – I wanted to – I just stopped liking the, the environment on Twitter. I mean, we've got all these alt-right weirdos who are just going on and on about all of their alt-right shit. And now we've got all these lefty activist types who are just screaming and raging uh, at every little infraction. You know, the the, the alt right and the left are kind of attacking each other. But I started detecting that both of those groups are starting to starting to attack centrists now. That being oh, somebody that's kind so interesting of simple. You know, and wants to entertain different perspectives is actually a greater sin than being a kind of dogmatic fundamentalist. You know, pick a side, don't be a centrist. You've got a, you got a, you're with us or against us. And I was just getting really, really sick of that. Nobody was noticing my Twitter shit. So uh, yeah, Bambi, mean, I want to try to put it on some other, uh, some other. We should put it on TikTok. I like. I was that, uh, Chinese. Like that'd I- be great. <laughs>
0: Yeah, exactly. That's like the big problem. Like I don't, I deleted TikTok off my phone. I had it there. I barely used it. I've always found it was kind of, uh, I guess, sophomoreish. you know, like it's something like if you're 15 and you're kind of nerdy, you'd be all over. But yeah, they really have s- struck a nerve. But one of the main reasons I think they're so successful is because people get the sense that if they put their video up there, it's going to be seen. Mm-hmm. And I think this is what Facebook and Instagram and even Twitter are kind of screwing up oh, we got to give preference to people, even LinkedIn, you know, like, oh, well, it's a CEO of General Electric. So he's got to have more of a say. So we're going to push him in our algorithm because we really want his content. And everybody else, you're just squeezed out. And uh, I think that's why TikTok is doing so well. It's people feel, oh, here is a platform that my work can get, actually get out there and be seen by millions of people potentially, and it's actually possible.
1: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. Unfortunately, it's TikTok.
0: <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, and like, I mean, exactly, like, about, run by about the last people in the world you want to be sending your data to. Yeah. You know? So, yeah.
1: So, I don't know, maybe it, I'll come back on Also, I was just getting really paranoid. I mean, one of the, one of the effects I've noticed of this whole lockdown. Is, I mean, I'm not a hugely social human being to begin with, but I still like to go places and I still like to interact with other members of my species, right? And just being in this house constantly, I start getting claustrophobic. Like, I mean, I would get claustrophobic when I was in my apartment, but I'd be able to, you know, I'd be able to leave occasionally. <laughs>
0: Yeah, are you, uh, what is the state of the lockdown there? It's done, isn't it, or not? It's
1: done, but, you know, like I said, I don't really want to, I just don't really want to go out much, and so I tend to kind of really twitchy and paranoid, and I don't know, I just, at one point, I was just like, I've got to get rid of all my Twitter stuff, I hate the world, I hate Twitter, I hate it all, I'm just destroying it all, (laughs) and so I just deleted everything. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, I mean, I still, I'm not going to get rid of that stuff. I like that stuff. I've been I have been think it's super original.
0: Like, yeah. I, I don't know anybody drawing with Microsoft Word. That sounds like pretty avant-garde sort of thing you find in a gallery or something. Like, oh, I never thought of that.
1: And the weird fractured language and everything. I mean, I like that stuff. I thought it sort of captured your sort
0: of, I don't know, for lack of a better term, aesthetic. You know, your, it sort of captured you.
1: You know, Here. so maybe I'll put it back up uh, pretty soon. But I was, I, I felt so satisfied when I got rid of it. I was like, there, fuck you, Twitter. I'm gone. What's the uh,
0: what's the Twitter handle for if anybody, for the handful of listeners that listen to this? Uh, is, is it B. Cots?
1: Brian Cotsweb.
0: Kotz. Cotsweb, right? Oh, no, no, it's just Brian Cots. Brian Cots. Oh, at, at Brian Cots. Uh, at Brian Kotz.
1: Yeah, got I it. mean, there's not going to be anything there for a while anyway, but. Yeah, uh, just, uh, to know and yeah
0: so that's the state of that are you still making new ones
1: yeah yeah i'm still making new ones good good uh i, I got a bunch of stuff i mean again i get kind of uh kind of worked up and hit a, i hit a bit of a block every now and then primarily because of the environment but i've got a few that are about the whole covid lockdown and uh just sort of the the rioting in the states and well i guess around the world and stuff so do you ever try printing
0: them out or making physical versions of these?
1: Uh, I don't really have anything that can that can do that right now. My printer's are just a piece of crap. But I do want to really make the copies.
0: I think that, yeah, it's something worth trying for, uh, attempting. Like, I'm starting to go towards, like, as a digital... Make a lot of my stuff digitally, and I'm, once I've started to figure out how to present it physically, yeah, it's a fun challenge, and it's actually quite difficult to do it in a kind of a smart way, you might say. But if you can do it in a way that's kind of persuasive and looks good, yeah, it's it's a great thing,
1: you know. I'm kind of curious to see what they'd look like physically, because uh, I mean, I'm using such cheap software. Uh, but at the same time, Twitter always downgrades the images anyway. So something to me that right. when, when it's on pages, it looks like a a really clear kind of gradient suddenly has these weird tube-like lines, which I mean, they look neat too, but it's not exactly what I thought. I was like, what the hell did all these weird sort of tubes come from or these strange little jittery, <laughs> jittery lines? What's yeah. it look like when I print it? I imagine, though, a, a decent printer. Would, uh, would just sort of take the gradient. I mean, the nice thing with digital yeah. files is I can make the, the file as big as I want it to be. And the larger the file, the smoother the gradient and the clearer the color. So, but then oh, again, cool. I'm also using pages, which is, uh, it's a nice little word processor, but it's hardly anything that's, you know, designed to make images really pop on the page. But then again, that is maybe part of the aesthetic. Maybe I can work with that.
0: Yeah, and another thing, like one of my secrets, so to speak, of uh, making things physical is say when I do screenshots, say of art history pieces, like in the related images series, I uh, what I'll do is I'll recreate those images in Photoshop in a large format. Like that took me years to two years to figure out. Oh, that's how I can do this. Because otherwise, I'm working. I was working on an iPhone 6s, which is like 700 pixel width, right? <laughs> so you try and print that big, and it looks like shit. And so I figured out, oh, I'll just recreate it. And then it felt like I was violating a kind of rule of some kind. That oh well, does this make it less authentic? But it's actually kind of I'm simulating now the thing that was on the phone, and this kind of art. Of, it adds adds actually an element of artificiality that I actually kind of like because. Now, if I was to, let's say I just put no fills on top and I just did a virgin, large-scale version of a screenshot that's, say, like, you know, a meter by two meters or whatever it is, it looks starts to look surreal because you've actually never seen it in high-res like that. And then when you actually come face-to-face with that work of art or that screenshot, it actually kind of captures you a little bit.
1: Oh, that's interesting.
0: So the reason I tell this story is don't i i would say don't let the artificiality thing stop you from putting that thing into photoshop and recreating it there you, you know cuz it oh. cuz it, then it's like you know, and ever since i came to that insight i say i use my phone as a compositional tool but it's not like the it's in a sense i do the mastering on the macbook oh, you know okay. but you know this it's that sort of idea so you could do the same thing you could use your Microsoft Word really is a compositional tool, and then you bring it into Photoshop, and all of a sudden you do these super high res versions, and all of a sudden it's like then it really gets crazy, right? Because then all of a sudden you're making these huge versions of these Microsoft Word things that are, are high res and don't have any of these little distortions. It
1: gets interesting, right? Yeah, I like that. Yeah, because I, one of the things I I like, you know, just personally, I like the way I figured out how to layer images to make them kind of glow. And jump out of the screen occasionally
0: Yeah, I see it I'm actually on your Twitter feed and I see your profile image and yeah that circle in the middle like that yeah
1: yeah, yeah. they kind of jump out yeah. and uh, when I was doing the larger things like the weird one with the tree that was all kind of geometric and sort of sort of alien looking I was just layering thing over thing over thing and pl- and placing just really a really basic kind of shadow effects, and it made everything look on my screen anyway. It made it kind of jump out a little bit, you know. And some of the other things that I was doing, where I had uh, layers of grays, and there'd just be a slight little beam of light, you know. And so I, I kind of like that effect. And if I can enhance that and make it more high resolution, that'd be great.
0: Yeah, like I, I would get a copy of Photoshop and start doing some experiments. And because the cool thing about what you're doing in Microsoft Word is like the tool really does. It's so limited in its capacity, although maybe not that limited because you're actually doing quite a bit of stuff with it. But that, yeah, like it, it that's a kind of freedom in itself to be because like, if you can start to make interesting things, which you have using just Microsoft Word, then and then you bring it the the high res stuff into it. Yeah, it just becomes uh, it's, it becomes original. Yeah. Because I don't think I don't know anybody else that's using Microsoft Word as a compositional tool. You know.
1: And I mean, that's so, just me not knowing how to use a not knowing how to use any kind of image, uh, any sort of Photoshop or any paint program. <laughs> kind of like how yeah. I used to do recordings by by you know patching a couple of Walkman together and getting these weird layered murky kind of ambient drone things. And it was like, well, I would just record them on Walkmans or uh, how I figured out how to hold a button on my old stereo just the right way so I could kind of get two channels at the same time and have everything kind of flicker and sort of (laughs) layer on on a cassette tape. I just simply don't know anything about the tech I'm using, so I just sort of screw around
0: yeah sometimes that works to your advantage i mean you could take all the classes in the world and all of a sudden you're you know some of these guys they take like a music uh, engineering course and then they never end up making music ever again you know yeah. okay well uh, anything else so you're just preparing your class enjoying your summer staying close to home that's pretty much the up, update i guess it, eh?
1: yeah and getting ready to lecture or record lectures i've got a it's kind of an interesting class actually i've i've laid the groundwork for it, it's an introductory English class that involves studying scientific literature. So uh, we have uh, stuff, I, I teach stuff that's scientifically based, not always science fiction, but there's a little bit of SF, but I do teach uh, texts that are science, uh, that tend towards a kind of scientific viewpoint. Yeah, uh,
0: science oriented, maybe. Or, oriented.
1: Yeah. Carl Sagan, for example. There's an Ursula K. Le Guin story about animal intelligence. I might actually throw that thing about fruit bats that I read the other day into the class. Stuff about artificial intelligence and stuff. I've got a novel that's that is an SF novel written by a Saskatchewan writer who's a, a Cree lawyer that deals with uh, a kind. Of, it deals with an environmental uh, collapse that makes everybody have to move into Larange because that's the coolest area. Of, and so is <laughs> La this gigantic uh, urban sort of uh, dwelling where uh, the, the lower areas, it's got different tiers and sort of the lower levels of Larange are sort of slum zones and people actually have elevated, they figured out ways to have sort of like elevated platform cities so they can kind of escape the the urban sprawl and the slum that's on the ground. And it's largely about a a lawyer and uh, a few other people. Uh, And the lawyer is kind of questioning his life and he ends up Getting a uh, an organic recreational vehicle that is uh, a bio cybernetic uh, vehicle. They're growing uh, they're growing these flying machines using bird DNA and cybernetics, and so he gets it to kind of escape on the weekends and fly around and kind of interface with it, and they develop a bit of a bond. Uh, because it starts to be by the end of the novel, it starts to becoming become more intelligent, and they start to become kind of one. It's sort of a, a spiritual, but almost maybe even possibly eventually in a literal way. It's it's really an interesting novel, you know. And again, you know, science is science comes back into this uh, this little interview here.
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh it's, I want to call it such an important narrative science, you know, like it's again, like, cause it's actually grounded in something real. So it just makes it inherently maybe a little bit more interesting and maybe more important than interesting. It makes it a little more relevant to our lives. Like it, it makes it a little bit more just important. Ballard always, uh, I was like, Oh, dude, am I going to have to mention art? I'm, I've been, there is a question that's been lurking at the back of my mind actually mm-hmm. before we go, which is, you know, and I'll probably ask you this more than one, but What's your sense now of Ballard? Like he's been dead for 13 years, J.G. G. Ballard. I think it's about 13 years. I mean, it was 2009. He's been over a decade. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I don't know, is there 10 years later? What do you think? the? It seems like the legacy is growing. Like there's a lot of students that seem to like Ballard. It, it seems like he's gotten kind of, after he's died, he's become a bit hipper among a, a wider audience yeah. of people that are in academia. You get I, that impression as well?
1: I think that's true. And I think that'll have, that'll, that'll, that'll work against him in the <laughs> end. Yeah. It's going to get the, it's going to get the wrong kind of attention.
0: Well, uh, he always hated uh, the overstated kind of really overwritten critical theory. Like yeah. he's all like, I mean, I dug up in my research. I mean, I, yeah, as as you know, I wrote my master's thesis on Ballard and the atrocity exhibition and I found this thing buried in a science fiction journal where I think I, I'm sure I showed that to you, where he replied or where he just trashed all the sort of postmodern things and postmodernism. And I don't think he loved Baudrillard. So I don't think he his beef was with uh, postmodernism per se. I think his beef was with a lot of the writing about postmodernism yeah. and they were starting to apply. their sort of, you know, almost like we were talking about earlier, this we were talking about the difference between just reality and this world of hyper real and of persuasion and of narrative. And I, I think he, ultimately the problem is a, they were too obscure and Ballard always, I think, prided himself on his clarity Mm -hmm. because he actually had something to say that was quite avant-garde and we can get into that in another sort of conversation. It's probably worth it. Um, But, and so I think he wanted to communicate that. And like he felt like he had some a lot of original good ideas, and so for him clarity was paramount. And so that kind of flies in the face of this whole critical theory—the overwritten stuff. It's not all bad, you know. Again, he he liked the speculative stuff from Baudrillard. They call him one of the most important thinkers in the last twenty years, and all that. So,
1: and I mean, like Jari and Jari's hardly clear, but at the same time, Jari's still approachable, you know. Dali is. Is a weirdo, and he's always playing a bit of a game with the with you, but he's still approachable. Oh, no, absolutely,
0: very so, accessible. You know, Freud, like has in-
1: some, Freud has some really strange theories that got disproven, uh, some of which got disproven throughout. You know, well before Bo- well before Ballard was even writing, but but Freud is approachable, and Freud even at his weirdest can be read as a metaphorical analysis like if you don't want to take freud literally and maybe you probably shouldn't take everything freud says literally you can still take him as a kind of insightful metaphor for a situation that's comprehensible you can understand what freud's talking about even if it might be strange to you you know and baudrillard baudrillard does get into the 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 excessively obscure sometimes But even then, sometimes, even when he's at his weirdest, once you figure out what Baudrillard's talking about, it all makes sense, you know, in a kind of jarry pataphysical way. There's a logic to it, and it's a playful kind of scientific logic where he's using science as a kind of metaphor to discuss things. So, I mean, it's all, it's weird writing. It may be counterintuitive and in some cases sort of bizarre and fucked up. But once you get the once you get the skeleton key to it, it makes sense. And it's not that difficult to get the skeleton key. It's not too difficult to figure this stuff out. Some of the other stuff that comes later, though, yeah. You know, yeah, like God, a, a, the way that are just utterly obscure. You know, even Derrida, I mean, I, I like him because he throws monkey wrenches and things, but I mean, even he he gets so obscure and strange that after a while it it's frustrating. And yeah, I, I understand what Derrida's on about, so I got the skeleton key and I can understand him. But then he gets into his sort of deconstructing himself and all of his wordplay, and it becomes stuff that you can largely skip because he's just turning his own lens onto himself and he's being obscure to show how language can become obscure, and then he does it for a hundred more pages. <laughs> yeah. So I, see why, you know, I can see why, uh, why, why Ballard would get sick of that. And Derrida is at least self-aware and he's aware of the fact that he's just kind of messing everything up and he's kind of wrecking discourse and wrecking his own discourse. And he's not taking himself as seriously. seriously, as yeah. the as, as all of his children have.
0: That's right. Like in Derrida's defense, at least it's intentional. Yeah, Like it's not like, uh, whereas yeah. And what I was going to say about say guys like Freud, and baudrillard and i think you could even say derrida and as well as ballard these things are they're based their idea their writings are based on very simple ideas yeah like very under you know like freud okay there's an ego a super ego and an id and it gets more complicated from there yeah but it's like you can go okay there's an unconscious you know these are very simple ideas same with baudrillard even Uh, you know i think most people you know are going to, with a little bit of reading, are going to kind of, you know, with a little bit of critical analysis of the media, are going to understand what Baudrillard's talking about with the Mm hyper-real, you know, and this thing that's kind of, this world that's kind of become disconnected from reality, because that kind of is our reality into this virus game. Like, it seemed like the triumph. We have the hyper-real president, really, and he's been sort of Dumbfounded by this whole virus because it's like he thought the rules were all hyper real and he could narrative is everything. I mean, that's yep. how he runs this thing. And this virus, in some respects, has humiliated him yeah. because of, uh, he's trying to run this hyper real show when, when the real has shown up, has mm-hmm. reappeared at the party, you know? So. Well, good. Okay. Well, maybe let's just leave it there, and uh, and we'll, let's check in sometime soon. It's great to hear from you. Take care. See you later. All right. Bye. You too. Bye. And there you have it my interview with Brian Kotz I hope you enjoyed it uh, that is just one of hopefully many to come and with that thank you for listening if you like what you heard feel free to share it with your friends share it online and if you want to find what I'm up to you can always go to at Pocabelli on Instagram or go to Pokebelli.net. we're going to have some prints available soon so that's also exciting thank you once again for listening and until next time I'm Adrian Tocabelli.